Hi and welcome to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, your host for the show. In this episode, we will talk to Brody Huvel. Brody is the co-founder of Drive.ai, the popular self-driving car company. Brody did his bachelor's from University of Florida and was pursuing his PhD at Stanford under Professor Andrew Ng. During his PhD, he and other co-founders of Drive.ai published a paper on an empirical evaluation of deep learning on highway driving. During the show, we'll talk about fascinating world of self-driving cars, the challenges they face, and how it is very critical to be aware of weakness of any AI solution. Thanks, Pradeep, for uh, taking time out and uh, welcome to this uh, podcast, Data Hack Radio. Just a bit about uh, myself and Analytics Vidya. So I'm Kunal. I founded Analytics Vidya back in 2013. At the start, it was actually more like a personal blog. So uh, at that time, I used to work with uh, Aviva Life Insurance and I started blogging on the side. And, you know, from there, it started taking its own life. Uh, uh, so people started following the blog. People started coming and asking questions to the point where I could see much uh, larger impact coming from uh, analytics with there rather than continuing in my job. Four years I've been doing this full time and we have transformed this uh, blog uh, into a community portal where people come and ask questions. People interact with other community professionals. Uh, and as part of various community activities, we uh, do various webinars, podcasts, so that people can get exposure to some of the thought leaders like yourself. And and that's where we reached out to you. And uh, and thanks for uh, taking this time out. Oh, cool. Yeah, thank you for, for having me on the show. And I guess for, for putting the podcast together as well. Let me start with, uh, you know, asking about your background. So can you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your background? Uh, how did you get into data science and some of the research which you've been uh, doing in Stanford? Yeah, so my general background, I went, I grew up in Florida and then I went to the University of Florida to study in uh, mechanical engineering, actually. And at the time I graduated, which was back in probably about 2009 or so, uh, AI was was starting to become popular once again. It was like kind of the end of the one of the AI winters, uh, and it was starting to become popular. And I was reading some news articles about it, and thought it was like a really interesting subject. So when I applied to graduate schools, I applied to a lot of computer science departments and double uh, E departments, and I ended up getting into Stanford for mechanical engineering, but kind of switching right away to computer science to work with uh, Andrew Ng and Dorcon. Uh, deep learning and, and natural language processing was kind of my first couple of projects. So I started there back in 2011, doing a PhD uh, within computer science. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I spent I spent about four years there doing various types of uh, machine learning and uh, deep learning. And in 2015, after working for maybe like two years on autonomous cars and, and computer vision, um, we decided to create Tribe AI, which is where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say we, this consisted of uh, the students in Andrew's lab. So there was uh, a couple of PhD students and a couple of master students. And uh, we realized this was you know, a great time for the technology and for the market. Uh, and we thought it'd be a great idea to kind of explore uh, what things would look like in industry if we took our research out and uh, applied it in the real world. 
So yeah, I've been doing that since 2015, um, working at Drive AI and yeah, making self-driving cars a reality, I guess. And uh, so when was the first time uh, that this idea of, uh, you know, self-driving cars uh, came uh, in front of you and then how did it happen? And, uh, you know, what were some of the early reactions or early thoughts you had? Yeah, so I, okay, so this started back in uh, maybe like 2012 or so. We had done this project mm-hmm. uh, where we tried to replicate some results that Google had done, Google Research. Mm-hmm. where they used 16,000 CPU cores to try to Good. create a large neural network to uh, watch YouTube videos all day and to see what it could find after, after doing this unsupervised learning. So mm-hmm. um, we saw that research and thought it was really cool, um, but we thought it'd be even better if we applied it to GPUs. Um, so we kind of recreated the results using just, I think it was like uh, 12 GPUs or something we created with you do a 16,000 wow. CPU. Okay. <laughs> and um, at that time, this was, you know, this was right when Alex Kruszewski's net, like that's right when I came out. Mm-hmm. That net was amazing, partly because it was on the GPU, right? So this is when everybody kind of realized once we finally have enough data and enough computational power, mm-hmm. uh, and GPUs are going to be what's unlocking uh, kind of this next wave in deep learning. And so this is yeah, about 2012. So we had done that project. At the end of it, we were left with this giant uh, cluster of like, I think I can't remember how many we had, maybe like 64 uh, machines, each with like four GPUs or something like that mm-hmm. uh, back, at, back at Stanford. And we knew we wanted to do something different. We knew we wanted to do something with uh, tons of data with high impacts. Mm-hmm. And we bounced around a couple ideas, but the one that stuck was self-driving cars um, mainly for the reason that, you know, it was, it was of course, high impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you could collect a bunch of labeled data in a really clever way. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought we would try to use, you know, a camera-only approach, mm-hmm. but collect the data set to train the cameras. Uh, we would use LiDARs and IMUs and really fancy GPSs. So we'd use really expensive sensors to automatically kind of annotate our data, use cameras only during uh, test time or inference time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was the plan and that's how we got into self-driving cars was basically just looking for a meaningful problem where we could get a bunch of labeled data really quickly <laughs> and and uh, how much time did it take to you know gather this initial data and uh, labeling it uh, uh, from there oh, it took so long uh, <laughs> if anybody's done uh, machine learning projects which I'm guessing a lot of your listeners have mm-hmm. uh, usually when you're getting started right you go out and kind of read whatever the state-of-the-art networks are, and then you go out and find a really popular benchmark or large data set, right? Yeah. Um, and I think you lose an appreciation for how hard it is to build that data set when you're just focusing on kind of re-implementing the networks, especially now with TensorFlow and things like that. It's, it can be rather simple to build up the networks, but if you actually try to build a data set on your own, it can be a very challenging task, right? There's a lot of logistics problems and just general software engineering problems to encounter. And when you're working with robotics in particular, you know, you're dealing with a lot of hardware as well. So you need, you know, electrical engineers and mechanical engineers, and you need to mount sensors and make sure that everything's calibrated uh, and make sure that all the, you know, you're going to have like a vehicle operating system as well. So in the early days, it was, um, you know, we got it done. It wasn't, uh, it took like a lot of, uh recruiting in some sense because when you're in an ai lab it's hard to get people to come in and then work on the vehicle operating system part of things on onboard the vehicle or just for data collection 
and uh, uh, for tagging did you have a team which uh, helped you out or tagging the data or that was uh, so how do, how did you go about tagging this data then so we did it so for lanes uh, that was totally automated mm-hmm. uh, so we had this fancy gps um, which you know could give us our, our our location within maybe like 5 centimeters, somewhat reliable mm-hmm. using that what you can do is you can get a path of kind of where the car is driving, right? You can you know the future path that the car is going to drive. And based on that route, you can actually assume that the lanes are just like some width away from the car. Mm-hmm. Use that knowledge of projecting uh, the future path into your current image, mm-hmm. and you can extract the lane information that way, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So that was, that was a more or less an automated project or automated uh, annotation. Mm-hmm. And then for, uh, did that make sense? Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah. And then for uh, dynamic obstacles, like mm-hmm. vehicles and pedestrians and things like I think it was me and uh, another grad student set up this uh, mechanical Turk pipeline. Got it. Yeah. And that was when we discovered the pains of mechanical Turk and trying to get your data annotated and mm-hmm. uh, like that. But so that, that was uh, more manual and also uh, a lot of logistics and overhead to deal mm-hmm. with. Okay. Okay. So this was like the you know first version of uh, of the self driving engine which you were building. So when did you test it out? What were the early results like? And you know uh, what were some of the areas where you thought it worked well, and areas which which then mm. would need improvement? Yeah. So we we ended up publishing a paper. If people are curious, uh, they can look up the paper. It was not it, you know it was. Um, just a kind of an empirical evaluation at the time. We were going to form the company uh, and wanted to publish some results before we did that. Sure. But it's called empirical evaluation on, on highway driving data. But in that, there's a video mm-hmm. uh, that you find, and it's maybe like an hour long or something where you can show mm-hmm. uh, highway driving for an hour. Uh, but, okay, so the question was the downsides of it or where were the weak points? Mm-hmm. Um, so on highway data, it worked rather well, right? Because most of the data we collected was highway driving. So in that domain, things would work pretty well. Uh, on urban areas, though, because we didn't have much data there, mm-hmm. uh, you would get a lot of false positives on the sides of the roads, I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically with buildings and things kind of like outside of its domain that it hadn't seen much of. Uh, but, you know, our application was kind of highway driving, so that, that's, that was the main purpose. Uh, in general, like, you get false positives every now and then on the sides of the roads of highways too, um, but those weren't detrimental to performance when you're actually driving because you don't want to run into like the, the, the signpost or walls anyway. So recall was remarkably high. Uh, I think, you know, when we showed potential partners what the system looked like uh, and the results we were getting, they were all impressed enough that it gave us the confidence to, to go out and talk to more industry partners and, and potentially form a business around mm-hmm. uh, the technology we had developed there. But yeah, I would say false positives were on the sides of the roads were one of the biggest weak points. Sure. And then uh, how were you measuring the rate of false positives and, and uh, you know, and what magnitude uh, was that number around, if you can share that? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. My guess is that paper probably listed somewhere. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, so I'm presuming that most of the next uh, work would focus on driving down these false uh, positives and improving on it from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so after that project, uh, we we started to incorporate more sensors. It was kind of the next uh, approach. 
Mm-hmm. So after we formed the company, we were kind of exploring for a little while what a camera-based solution would look like for autonomous cars. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of a hotly debated topic sometimes in self-driving cars of like, do you want a camera-only approach? Because yeah. essentially all humans use to drive or should you use all the sensors you have available, which would include LiDAR uh, and radar and camera mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, those main sensors. Yeah. And I think our uh, opinion was that camera-based solutions are uh, pretty decent for the highway. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense for the OEMs, OEMs being like the, the major car manufacturers of the world. Yeah. Because for them, they're very price sensitive, right? And they're selling private vehicles. Um, but when we made this switch from kind of like this level two driving, like this kind of highway autopilot to mm-hmm. old level four, which is... Uh, you know, more or less uh, geofenced, uh, fully autonomous driving. Yeah, uh, you're no longer selling <laughs> that that full vehicle to to customers anymore. You're you're most likely going to be selling a service, mm-hmm. in which you can much more easily amortize the the cost of these higher you know, these expensive sensors such as lidar and radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, you know, after after the camera based approach, we started to uh, explore what lidar detection would be like. Mm-hmm. And uh, using LiDAR for perception of the vehicles, as well as radar. Uh, so combining all the different sensors to get much better precision and recall. Uh, and what is your view today? Do you think that over time, as uh, camera-based systems see more and more data, they would become more accurate and, and you'll see them perform better in urban areas? Or or you think they'll hit a plateau and in urban areas will need to continue to use LiDAR for a while? I think they definitely will get more accurate, right? I think it's a matter of computational power is one of the biggest holding back mm-hmm. computer vision. That and the data, right? Because the, the dimensionality of the camera data you get is just really high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need a lot of data to be able to understand all the nuances within images. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the meantime, I guess the the other argument is like, why handicap yourself? Mm-hmm. If uh, radar and LiDAR are available and they're getting much, much cheaper every month uh like why would you not use those sensors so that they get better performance and that's that's what's interesting about lidar right now is for you know the major car manufacturers it's hard for them to justify putting lidar in their cars right now because you know they haven't quite worked out the economies of scale uh they're kind of expensive right now mm-hmm. and not fully tested with an automotive environments like they're not um, you know, they still have like some moving parts and they might not be as reliable as some of the OEMs want. It's It's been amazing to see like the development of LiDAR technology in the past couple of years and how much money and resources are going into making them better because they realize, you know, people realize how amazing the technology could be for autonomous cars. So, yeah, I mean, I think cameras will definitely always play a big role in, in self-driving cars. I just uh, don't see why you would only use cameras as of now with the cost and robustness of LiDAR coming down so much. And recently I uh, read that, you know, the self-driving cars have been now deployed as uh, as taxis and they are uh, undergoing a trial uh, uh, in Arizona, if I'm, no, sorry, uh, my dad. So they they were deployed uh, in one of the cities. and, uh, you know, so from testing it on highway to uh, running it in form of, uh, you know, uh, taxis in a, in a city. So what, what were some of the major hurdles which you came across and then what, what kind of solutions did you create? Yeah, so you mean, um, so we, we recently deployed some cars in Frisco, Texas. Uh, that might be what you're referring to. Right, right. 
We worked with kind of the local government and some private partners there uh, to set up a, a safe geofenced area where we can deploy our cars. Uh, right now we have about seven vehicles, more or less, mm-hmm. uh, operating in an area which can service about 10,000 people. It's essentially set up to try to solve this microtransit problem, like distances which are too close to want to drive to and then too far to want to walk to, especially in the Texas heat, you know, where it can get uh, extremely hot there in the summers. Uh, the idea is our vehicles can provide access for some local industrial parks to get to either restaurants or hotels and other area, areas of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, major problems that we encountered, um, you know, probably like a lot of our other self-driving car companies or even anybody in robotics, I think, uh, kind of the main unanswered questions or things that could be improved in performance would be perception and motion planning and prediction. Mm-hmm. Right? So perception, just being able to understand where the dynamic objects are. Uh, motion planning, how do you route yourself around um, these dynamic objects given the uncertainty in your predictions? And then also the prediction thing, which is uh, predicting where all these objects are going to be in maybe the next 10 or 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, what their intentions are going to be. So, yeah, these are just classical machine learning problems, right? Uh, and I think you know, one of the best ways to solve these uh, machine learning problems when you have access to both the data set and the neural network um, is, you know, you kind of try to improve them together. So, like, this hard negative mining becomes a really important thing of, of being able to understand where the biggest failures are in your current system. Mm-hmm. And then quickly identifying those, adding them to your train set, your test set, your simulator, mm-hmm. and then going out and collecting more data with those cases. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that could mean staging some situations if you want to test things out. Uh, also, the simulator is, is becoming a bigger and bigger component of all you know, robotics and self-driving cars so that you can quickly iterate and test out your motion planning system uh, and kind of the rest of your stack mm-hmm. uh, in a very fast way. So, yeah, so I'd say it's, it's similar to a lot of machine learning problems. Difference between like kind of this academia and industry, though, is usually in academia, when you encounter these problems, your, your data set is fixed, mm-hmm. right? You're going to probably be uh, iterating on your neural network or your, uh, your motion planning algorithm quite a lot. But in industry, you know, it's free. Everything's you know up for grabs. Like it's, it's you can do whatever you want to try to improve the performance. And so um, you can imagine a lot of resources going to just improving that data set because that alone, I think, will will solve a lot of problems. And there's a lot of infrastructure needed for all the testing we do and all the uh, the data collection and robust playback of data and, and calibration of sensors and things like that as well. Sure, sure. Dear listener, I am excited to announce the launch of Analytics with their Medium publication. With our Medium publication, we have opened the gates to anyone wanting to write for Analytics with them and share their work or their learnings with our community. So head over to medium.com slash analytics dash with them and start following our Medium publication. For the writers in you, you can submit your work to us and stand a chance to get your work featured in front of one of the largest data science community. You gain the recognition as a subject matter expert and get personalized feedback from experienced editors uh, from analytics with them. The publication can be found on medium.com slash analytics dash with them. In order to implement these, so uh, how do you 
take care of problems like let's say any uh, road works which are going on uh, or uh, or you know uh, uh, any real time changes which happen on the road apart from obstacles yeah so this is yeah this is kind of the special case problem within self driving cars and it's a, a very challenging problem right because you can solve the general case of self driving if you assume that all the cars around you and all the pedestrians uh are rational actors and they're going to be doing exactly how you predict and uh they're wearing nice reflective objects and things things like that so that you can detect them easy but what do you do when you get a curve right like when the road changes on you and somebody repaints the road uh and this happens quite often actually and so it's still like definitely you know somewhat of an open area of research and the way that we are trying to solve it right now is uh one is through partnerships right i mean why um <laughs> for something that would be much more robust if we just worked with the government uh so that if they are going to make changes they let us know like well in advance that's i think one of the main ways we're dealing with that problem mm-hmm. uh, and if you can solve it in just a simple way as, as actually going out and talking to people uh mm-hmm. it's i think it's silly not to at least try to do that a little bit so um that that i think is one of the first barriers of defense that we have is is being able to predict when things are going to change on the roads and then yeah because it's a lot of it is about understanding the current weaknesses of artificial intelligence and of the algorithms that we have mm-hmm. uh, the quicker that we can admit that there's weaknesses in some of these areas the quicker we can provide a valuable service okay. uh, in these areas. yeah um but that that being said i mean we are working on you know the longer term research which does solve these problems that uh make the system robust and uh when it when it encounters uncertainty and one of the ways we're doing that is this uh telechoice so uh kind of these teleoperators that are able to uh, help out the vehicle if it encounters a situation it's uncertain about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's something that we're using on our vehicles as well and that's another approach we're taking and when you say teleoperators i'm presuming it's just remote but uh, uh, they're not operating by telephone or are they operating through telephones uh they are operating over the network and so they getting mm-hmm. the stream of cameras so they have the camera data available to them mm-hmm. and right now they're kind of making discrete discrete decisions for the car so they're just choosing some different things that the car might might decide to do Mm-hmm. Uh and you can imagine like in that for the the construction site you uh said like this could be a situation where we encounter something where we're detecting an object mm-hmm. uh, such as a barrier in a place where we wouldn't expect one so the car might come to a halt mm-hmm. um and then come back home really quickly and then have a operator uh choose between the different routes that the car's thinking of taking in this situation and then from there on out you know the other cars that encounter that same situation can also take that same route And so these are these are practical ways of of solving this tech you know solving that situation with the technology available today mm-hmm. uh and I think it's you know still a very safe approach to take and uh the other uh, aspect which comes to my mind is you know the changes in external uh, environment so for example changes in weather or day circumstances versus night circumstances so so uh, you know uh, i'm Uh, presuming that model would perform dif- uh, differently in different scenarios so uh, so how did you take care of uh, that bias and then uh, how do you uh, solve that problem uh, uh, in order to implement these cars on road mm-hmm. yeah right now i mean it goes back to also just kind of understanding what the car weaknesses are in the context yeah. yeah, so rain can be a big problem for lidar units um it's using light to kind of detect 
the distance of all the objects and that might refract differently with water and, and, and cause some weird detections and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously cameras are not that great at night because they're, they're a passive sensor. They're not actively sending out. Uh, um, so uh, right now in our, in our initial deployment, uh, we are operating during daylight hours. And then if we reach bad enough inclement weather, uh, we will pause the service. Okay. Uh, so in this first deployment, um, we're making sure that we can have a you know, safe, safe deployment of the technology that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I think the, the vehicle handles uh, inclement weather rather well, actually. We do a lot of night driving as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, just out of kind of an abundance of caution, and not to mention that's where the value is right now, is usually uh, during daytime hours. It's when most of your customers are going to be requesting rides. Um, so it's kind of the, the sweet spot to just say, you know, we'll, we'll just operate during daylight hours right now. Our approach definitely does scale to these nighttime hours and to inclement weather, um, you, you know, using the same approaches that we use for everything else and collecting the data in those situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to have a safe rollout, I think we're, we're testing the technology in, you know, in conditions that we want to control. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, from your perspective, what are the, you know, uh, let's say top two or three uh, questions or priorities in order to, you know, uh, uh, enable a wider uh, use of these self-driving cars? So so what are those challenges uh, which you would want to solve in, let's say, coming uh, months or years? Uh, so maybe I don't understand the question. So... Uh, yeah, so what I was saying, what are the, let's say, top three uh, questions or top three challenges which you would want to solve in coming months and coming years so that uh, mm. uh, you know we can have more wider deployment of these self-driving cars mm, i see i see um i think prediction is one of them of like handling uh what that pedestrian on the side of the road looking at their cell phone is thinking of doing next mm-hmm. uh, yeah that, that's a challenging problem um other ones is Getting more robust sensors, I think that that is also uh, one easy way to try to solve the problem. So you know, working, trying to find uh, the best lidar solutions mm-hmm. um, that are robust and that we can count on, you know, reliably, mile after mile. Mm-hmm. And then uh, third one, I mean, there's a lot of work I think to be done uh, in the simulator and motion planning. So improving kind of the simulation environment that we have. Um, so that we can really quickly iterate on a lot of uh, different parameters in, in the motion planning system to handle all these different special cases. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there's also, yeah. I mean, yeah. Sure. And uh, uh, let's say, you know, in, in order to deploy these self-driving cars in a completely new geography let's say uh, if you want to deploy it in india hypothetically speaking uh, how does that process work so how much time do you need to train in these uh, change circumstances how robust or how much learnings can be transferred any any experience on those sides anything which you can share new areas i mean i guess just to give you some context when when we made the decision to go to texas and deploy our vehicles there um, it took us about, I think, five days to go from initial vehicle on the ground to actually driving autonomously there. 
Wow. Um, once you have the, the infrastructure set up, you know, it's a matter of just mapping the area so that you can localize and figure out where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, it's helpful to collect a little bit of, a little bit more dynamic data. So mm-hmm. in Texas, for example, there was a lot more trucks, uh, a lot more pickup trucks than we'd, we'd see in California. Uh, mm-hmm. So I mean, just getting a, an understanding of the local data distribution there. Also, the traffic lights were horizontal there instead of vertical like they are in California. Okay. Uh, so you know, it, it took a little bit more data. So we collected a little bit of data, augmented our existing data sets, mm-hmm. and you know, sure enough, then it, it works rather well. So yeah, I think mapping the biggest bottleneck and deploying quickly to different areas, mm-hmm. um, and that's why HD maps. You know, that they're an interesting topic when you talk about scalability of, of self-driving cars. Uh, and whether or not you need to have an HD map for an entire region, right? Because uh, an HD map, what that entails is uh, centimeter levels of accuracy on all of the objects in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need really clever ways, kind of, of updating your maps if, if anything changes in the world. If you know, if buildings get knocked down, or if lane changes, uh, sorry, they, they repaint the lanes, or even if bushes grow, like this can these can be things that uh, kind of mess with your map and mess with the, the localization of the vehicle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Taking a step back and looking at the overall industry, uh, you know, there is a, uh, uh, so lately there have been a lot many more players coming into this space. So uh, you know, how do you look at uh, uh, the space growing in future? Uh, how do you see Drive.ai kind of uh, differentiating itself and continuing to lead this uh, this domain? Yeah, so since we started back in like 20, I mean, I guess we kind of started the project back in like 2013 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's been amazing to watch the whole industry flourish, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's more than just players like us, there's also like a, a bunch of annotation companies that have cropped up, mm-hmm. uh, which is a whole other interesting topic and something that I've worked quite a lot on. And then there's, you know, the LiDAR companies that have sprung up. So mm-hmm. people create LiDARs, there's the simulation industries so people that are trying to provide simulators for people uh and almost for like every component in the stack for self-driving cars you see like new companies springing up trying to provide solutions there like mm-hmm. uh i believe there's a company trying to provide prediction of pedestrians right like it's, mm-hmm. it might seem like a very you know, specific uh module in the self-driving car stack but um, you know, there's a lot of resources going into every single one of these components, which I think is justified given uh, the just the economic impact that self-driving cars will have. And, you know, if we can't solve this technology, how many more exciting things it will unlock? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so there's a couple other people um, kind of doing similar things as, as Drive AI, which, you know, I think the differentiators between us and them um, for one, it's it's hard to speak to other competitors because we it's not as if I can just go and use their product, right? Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. This industry is like a little different, so uh, I can't just hop on their website and see how their their, their stuff differs than ours. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're taking definitely, I think, a, a very people centric approach. Uh, so one thing that is important for us is that we think about the the humans and the pedestrians around the vehicle as we're driving around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you look up Drive AI and if you look at the images of our of our vans that we have, uh, you'll notice that they're strikingly orange, right? They're not meant to be pretty or aesthetically pleasing necessarily. They're meant to grab attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that reason is to signal to people that, hey, these are self-driving cars. They might not act as a normal human driver would, right? Uh, and they might not even 
be somebody behind the wheel. And so that problem, like I said, of, you know, if, if a human is going to be crossing a crosswalk, uh, it's really weird not having a driver to make eye contact with so that you can, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of like verify that you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so we covered our, our vehicle with these panels um, that will tell the, the pedestrian what our intention is. So if we plan on waiting for the pedestrian, mm-hmm. it'll say that on the panels, like waiting for you to walk. And that, you know, able to, you know, that provides a lot of confidence to the pedestrian that, you know, the car actually sees it and that it's going to be waiting for it. Otherwise, the pedestrian might just sit there and wait and wait, uh, thinking that it's, it's not too sure what these self-driving cars are and I'm not sure if it's really trusted to walk in front of you. Um, yeah. Same with, same with um, people inside the vehicle as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've ever ridden in a self-driving car, one thing that you can't help but think the entire time is, oh, does it see that vehicle right ahead of us? Does it see that pedestrian right over there? Like, is it is it seeing all the things that I'm seeing right now? So making sure that you have good interaction for the passengers, like a good display that can show and provide cover to the people in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the car is also really important. Right. So so you have some kind of, uh, let's say, maps or interactive maps, which, which people can look at so that they get more comfort. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also uh, the way we try to deploy our vehicles, you know, we try to partner with the governments, mm-hmm. um, other private partners in, in ways that we can help mitigate the biggest weaknesses of self-driving cars. So I feel like that's another approach that I don't hear quite often is, is being able to uh, you know, understand the weaknesses of the current technology and then come up with just really simple, practical ways of mitigating those risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we also, we started at the time of the, of the kind of the deep learning revolution. So um, the, the, a lot of the core of our technology uh, is built around deep learning pipelines and this large-scale GPU training. So that was an advantage we had over you know, some of the earlier players as well. You know, what was the customer reaction or people reaction? So you mentioned some of them, but, uh, you know, so how are people perceiving these uh, uh, now? Or is there still an inhibition uh, in, in kind of uh, getting into these cars now? So, so how is it that, how's the adoption going? Oh, yeah, the adoption going well. I think in the, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers. I think in the first uh, five days, uh, maybe I have the, the numbers somewhere, but mm-hmm. I think we've given, in the first of the week, we've given rides to hundreds of, of users on the service so far. I mean, we just launched it mm-hmm. uh, like two weeks ago or so. So it's still early days in, in the deployment. Yeah. And we're, we're rolling it out um, slowly. So it will be open to uh, you know 10,000 people eventually. But right now, we're keeping it in small groups and kind of making sure that we got everything down right and making sure that the customers feel safe and, and uh, comfortable mm-hmm. before or scaling it out even further. But yeah, so far, especially in the summer, the, the adoption is great. I mean, I think that they love having an alternative to having to drive or to having to walk to the restaurants that they frequently go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a mobile app experience so that the, that it's rather easy for to just hail a ride uh, and, and have somebody drive you over there. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And uh, looking at the current, uh, uh, you know, deployments, uh, what are the kind of uh, techniques which which are being used by these vehicles on the road? So, so which machine learning techniques or deep learning techniques uh, you have found uh, to be really useful? And you know, for example, do they uh, do they use reinforcement learning, or that's that's still not uh, the case? Again? 
Can you share a bit more details around the techniques being used? Yeah, so this is, I think, speaking to the kind of learned approaches versus the classical machine learning approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I remember in like the early days uh, of self-driving cars, there was a lot of talk of like end-to-end approaches mm-hmm. where essentially just, you know, your training data was the camera images and then what the human driver did in that situation, mm-hmm. right? And that's on one extreme of end-to-end learning. You can imagine it takes a ton of data. If you don't break the problem up, it's yeah, it's going to require tons of data to actually solve that problem, and 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 that astronomical amount of data just to verify that it's safe. Because that's another big component to all of this, right? Is how do you how do you prove that the system is safe? And if all you can do is test the full end-to-end solution, you need a lot of data mm-hmm. uh, test every like different you know, possible situation. So yeah, we do not do end-to-end learning. We we use the learning approaches like deep learning within the modules that it happens to work really well for. So for perception, for example, uh, it turns out deep learning it works great for perception. Uh, and some of the reasons why is because you're dealing with really high-dimensional data, and you can't just kind of have a human uh, code in like all the rules for pixel values and images, right? I mean, I think a lot of people have probably seen this before. If they work with robotics data and geospatial data, it's hard. It's really hard for humans to make sense of the way that the you know, the algorithms see it and the robots use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are generally all deep learning solutions. Is when you're dealing with the input of geospatial data, mm-hmm. um, the the motion planning system is is not so much uh, reinforcement learning or um, or a deep learning approach. It's you know it, it is a combination of classical, but also there are some learn, learn, machine learning components to it as well, and some learned components, especially when you start using the simulator a lot and then testing out different configurations. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason being there is it's, you know, reinforcement learning, I think, is great, but I don't think it's had uh, the same advancements that perception has had. And I think it's getting better. And I think it's something that, you know, we need to keep an eye on and uh, we're definitely excited about and, and doing experiments with. But um, to put it on the real, you know, on a real car and then put it out to the real world, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not sure it's ready for, for prime time quite yet. Are you excited about the possibilities of computer vision through deep learning? The application of computer vision range from understanding the environment in a self-driving car to building facial recognition systems for classrooms or manufacturing industries. Head over to trainings.analyticswithdia.com and check out our course on computer vision using deep learning to start your journey today. And when you uh, look at the industry, let's say over the next uh, five years, you know, some of the new roles which might come up. So, for example, you know, you mentioned that there is a lot of work happening on perception or simulation. Do you see new roles uh, or new kind of work coming out uh, as the industry evolves? Yeah. So, yeah, I can go over the quick, I guess, what people call the AI stack for self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is kind of what a lot of the different companies are converging to for the different teams that you might have within a self-driving car company. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, what I've talked about, there's the perception team, there's like the kind of the prediction team, there's the motion planning team, 
there's also uh, calibration teams. There's uh, annotation teams, so like getting the all the data that we need. Um, there's the mapping and localization teams. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you build up the map and how do you localize in the world? And then there's you know just general DevOps and infrastructure is another big component to all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you make sure that all of the engineers are as effective as possible? Because when you when you need to train on all that data, you know it, it's it's tough enough sometimes of handling the logistics of getting all that data back to our cluster for training, right? After it's collected on the vehicle, and how do we make sure that we can replay back that data reliably? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's also you know a hardware and vehicle operating system component to this. Um, so we don't use ROS like I think uh, some other companies might use. We we found that um, there were some issues with uh, playback and reliability of of capturing the data that we kind of just wanted to handle ourselves and have our own custom approach. Um, so that was you know a rather big project in rewriting that. Yeah, and so. Out of out of those, that's, that's kind of like what we we see as the what's needed to solve self driving cars right now. There's also tele tele operations is another uh, team, and I think you know the ones that are growing right now. Uh, one of them, which you know I kind of talked about a second earlier, but uh, one of them that is growing in importance in robotics is annotation, yeah. and it doesn't sound like that important. Um, and the reason being that up until you know uh, for a lot of the early applications of machine learning. Uh, the data sets were more or less created by the users, right? So in Google web search, Google does not go out and annotate its like, you know, kind of web search data. Mm-hmm. The data set there is built by the users based on the click-through rates, right? Based on like where uh, its own users are clicking. Got it. Um, and with Facebook, you know, you, the data set there is kind of the network that its users built up. So once again, the users built the data set. Mm-hmm. Same with Amazon, right? The, you know, what it just analyzes what the users bought, does the correlation there to do recommendations. And so that, once again, is a user-built data set. Now, I mean, contrast that to robotics. Mm-hmm. You know, when we go out and we collect uh, some data with some cameras, mm-hmm. we don't have users that label that for us, right? The drivers don't label that. And so that's why annotation is just a whole different ballgame within robotics is you're dealing with this high dimensional geospatial data um, that you need to spend a lot of time and resources to annotate yourself uh, if you want to take advantage of these deep learning approaches. Mm-hmm. So you know, we spend a lot of resources on building up really efficient annotation tools so that we can build the, the biggest data set possible. And I think it's something, you know, and that's, and that's why you're seeing a lot of new annotation companies come up. We used to have like a, Amazon Mechanical Turk, yeah. but now there's you know like ten other alternatives that um, that can try to label your robotics or your self-driving car data for you. Yeah, I mean the other other big industries which are growing a lot is um, simulation. So mm-hmm. also in robotics, it turns out it's it can be really costly to run a bunch of tests. Mm-hmm. So this is different than what we saw before with uh, most machine learning done on like web scale type things. If you know if you want to test out your different approaches, you're probably going to do A/B testing, which can be very automated. But in robotics, if we did A/B testing, it's really expensive, right? We actually get you know all of you know two different approaches on the vehicle itself, and then drive around for I don't know hundreds of miles. Um, that's a slow and costly process. Mm-hmm. Uh, a much faster way is to try to simulate these different things under a host of all of the interesting scenarios that we've seen in the past. And so, when you're driving around, you can reliably encounter really tough cases, mm-hmm. but you know, you better believe in the in the simulator. Well, we it's mostly consisting of really tough cases for the car to try to solve. So the simulation is becoming a, a really big component within robotics and and self driving cars. 
Sure, sure. And uh, so it's it's really interesting. So on the simulation side, you know, uh, what kind of uh, techniques are being used and, uh, and you know, uh, any particular resource you might uh, recommend which the community members can look for if they have to just, uh, you know, understand the overview of the kind of simulations and the techniques which are uh, being used? Yeah, so by techniques, uh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? So, I mean, are there, let's say, specific classes of uh, uh, either algorithms or approaches which are uh, working well on the simulation side? Uh, so, for mm-hmm. example, you know, Monte Carlo simulation or some other. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, right now, the so uh, I guess I'll give you one very basic example or use case of the simulator. When we go out and map a new area, uh, we need to do all the lane annotations as well so that the car has an understanding of kind of where where it is able to drive to right if it if it's in if it's coming up to an intersection it needs to know within this lane um, what are the relevant traffic lights and then what are the relevant uh, other lanes that I can transfer to mm-hmm. and the annotation of that road network is not perfect right so uh, there might be cases where a human has like missed some sort of connection within the lanes and the car doesn't realize it can actually make another connection to a different lane. The, the simulator that we have can, you know, try to test the car out of like, okay, can the car route from, you know, point A to point B and we'll select a bunch of different points and try to see if the car can always make it there. And it, even in that very simple simulation, you know, we can test out if the road network is valid or not. So it's not as if it's doing randomized, I mean, Monte Carlo approaches. It's more or less just trying to play back the car driving itself mm-hmm. as best as it can. And so this consists of, you know, for in that situation, you're not dealing with like other dynamic objects. You're, you're just testing out the motion planning system, making sure that it can route in the areas that you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also replay back data that you've collected. So if you found an interesting scenario that your current motion planning system doesn't solve, then you can replay back that scenario over and over again uh, while you're tuning your motion planning system. So that, that's like another uh, common use case of it as well. Uh, and then also, you know, you can test like you were talking about earlier, if you wanted to test how things are in inclement weather, you can you know, modify the perception system mm-hmm. to, to kind of simulate those types of situations as well. And uh, going forward, you know, uh, so obviously you've started with uh, testing it uh, in uh, human transport uh, scenarios, but there are, you know, parallel use cases uh, for self-driving cars, like, uh, you know, for example, delivery of uh, goods uh, in an automated manner. So Mm -hmm. are there, uh, you know, any of these parallel use cases which you uh, see yourself uh, getting into in near future or, uh, you know, how, uh, what are some of these use cases uh, where we might see self-driving cars getting adopted in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, yeah, you're definitely right. There's a lot of amazing use cases for self-driving cars. Um, package delivery is one, one big one as well. Uh, and right now, Gravia is focused on this kind of micro-transit problem for people transportation. Mm-hmm. That's what we're hoping to solve first and foremost and, and get that nailed down well and scaled out. And then once you have that technology, I mean, it transfers pretty well to the other applications like you're talking about. I mean, there's, there's even like, you know, different services that have to drive around. So you can imagine there's a lot of technicians yeah. um, where they have very specialized skills, but 
they have to spend a lot of their time just driving out to these remote areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, a lot of wasted resources. Is you, you could have that technician doing something more valuable instead of driving. And so, you know, that's not package delivery or people transportation necessarily. It, it could be like an enterprise solution as well for, for people providing, um, you know, specialized skills. Correct. Sure. Machine learning practitioner uh, perspective. Uh, if they have to, you know, look at building a career in uh, automated cars or uh, you know driverless cars. So, what are uh, how uh, what would be your advice? How should they go about uh, uh, you know building their career? What what are some of the ways in which they can get into this domain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I guess one thing I would like to impress on people is there's like for, for self-driving cars and for machine learning companies in general um there's so much beyond just understanding neural networks you know there's mm-hmm. i feel like there's a, only a small minority of people that are really focusing on hardcore uh, neural networks and getting those things solved mm-hmm. um if you want to help contribute to self-driving cars um there's still just a ton of infrastructure so if you have just any general software um skills then that's enough to start applying to different self-driving car companies because um of all the infrastructure work that we need and, and just general of, of dealing with the data and visualizing the data so, so just general computer science is one really important thing to have uh there are you know there are areas in robotics uh, there's textbooks you can read as well uh probabilistic robotics the one by sebastian Thom is one good one mm-hmm. uh, Planning Algorithms, which is another textbook by Lavelle. Uh, that's also another good one to get really hardcore into the algorithms themselves. I think uh, Udacity even has like a self-driving car nano degree that I've yeah. seen uh, a lot of people applying to, to the company that have taken. And so those are all uh, great approaches. In, in general, I think first and foremost, we look for if they are like really good developers. Um, and we'd much rather have somebody who is uh, a very skilled developer and then kind of teach them the machine learning process that we use at Drive and kind of the ins and outs of like how we allocate our resources towards machine learning and towards everything else. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely not going to hurt if, if you go out and spend a lot of time messing with TensorFlow and, and trying to do some benchmarks and um, other other things with perception. But um, in general, you need to have a lot of just general architecture and software skills uh, first. Great. Uh- Thanks, thanks, Brody, uh, for your time. And uh, uh, I mean, really enjoyed this discussion. And uh, uh, I personally learned a lot of things uh, about uh, driverless cars and how the industry is evolving. Uh, so uh, th- thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Kanal. Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you for reaching out. Sure. Thanks a lot. And uh, thanks for taking time out. <laughs> 